is Radio SIAMS, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology and conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On September 15th, archaeologist Lisa Nevitt from the University of Michigan met with a panel of SIAMS students and faculty to discuss two of her works on household archaeology. The first is Seeking the Domus Behind the Dominus in Roman Pompeii, Artifact Distributions as Evidence for the Various Social Groups, which appeared as the fifth chapter in Professor Nevitt's 2010 book from Cambridge University Press, Domestic Space in Classical Antiquity. The second article our participants read was Artifact Assemblages in Classical Greek Contexts, Towards a New Approach, which appeared in Household Studies and Complex Society, Microarchaeological and Textual Approaches. This volume was published by the University of Chicago Oriental Institute in 2015. So it's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Science. Good morning. My name is Kathleen Barrett. I'm an associate professor of classics, and my work deals with the archaeology of religion and ritual, interactions between Egypt and the rest of the ancient Mediterranean world, and the material culture of ancient households. And we're here with Lisa Nevet, who is a professor of classical archaeology at the University of Michigan and director of the Interdepartmental Program in Classical Art and Archaeology. And Dr. Nevet is known for her pioneering work on houses and households in classical antiquity. Her publications include two monographs, House and Society in the Ancient Greek World and Domestic Space in Classical Antiquity, uh, a co-edited book with Bradley Alt, Ancient Greek Houses and Households, Chronological, Regional, and Social, Social Diversity. A co-edited book with Bradley Alt, Ancient Greek Houses and Households, Chronological, Regional, and Social Diversity. And most recently, a new edited volume, Theoretical Approaches to the Archaeology of Ancient Greece, Manipulating Material Culture. And uh, her work has really um, been important in uh, creating new approaches to the Greek house, not just as a built structure, but as a product of daily dwelling activities and a source for social history. She's also co-directing a field project currently at Olympus. So let's get the conversation started. Hi, I'm Kathleen Garland. I'm a third year in classics in the archaeology track, and I'm interested in the Hellenistic economy. Um, so I'm really interested in production, and I was wondering if you could talk a little about production in the home and how that might be a way at getting at some of these marginalized identities um, that domestic archaeology seems to be like a really fruitful area um, to pursue that, that study. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, so um, there has been some limited um, study of domestic production. Um, I think one of the things to realize is um, that the, the household and the home were defined differently in antiquity from the way we define them today. So, Whereas today we tend to separate various activities like um, domestic, um, commercial, production-oriented activities, they're often in different spatial locations. In antiquity, they're much more integrated together. Um, and there's one recent book I know who, where, where the author um, keeps claiming, well, a lot of these buildings that we find in the archaeology are not really domestic because they have evidence of production. And of course, that kind of misses the point that um, you know, the way that activities are um, combined and uh, recombined are sort of culturally <laughs> specific. Um, so 
So yeah, so I think uh, it, in antiquity there was a lot more uh, integration of production into the domestic context, and obviously production took place often on a much smaller scale. Um, so you might have perhaps one space within the dwelling space that was used for full production, but on, on quite a small scale. Hi, I'm Blake. I am a first year in the Science Master Program, interested in conservation, preservation, and presentation, especially of fabrics. Um, and I noticed in one of your readings you were mentioning cascapes, where you're looking at things through time, not just at a certain point. And do you have any digs set up where you're actually using that? Is it appearing at your current one in Olympus, or? Yes, I mean, so both the readings I suggested really because I think they kind of represent moments and perhaps the development of the way I've thought about the domestic context and um, and uh, my thought has really developed through time um, and one of the things is I think to move away simply from architecture because I think we've got to a stage where we've said all we can say about architecture but also um, sort of thinking about it as an aspect that can be consciously manipulated so I think you know, we're all quite familiar with needing to be critical of textual evidence and the fact that, you know, a, a text can represent one perspective among many. Uh, but I think architecture, we should think of in the same way. I mean, if you look at an ancient house, we don't know who designed and built that house. Um, so I think there's potentially a tension there between whoever designed and built it um, and the activities that actually took place within it. And if, only, if you only look at the architecture, you're not going to uh, see that. Um, so I think uh, some of the people who have started to look at um, artifacts, like Mercy Allison, for example, have kind of said, well, oh, the architecture doesn't match with the distribution of artifacts, and therefore the artifacts are not useful. And I guess both these articles were really an attempt to say, well, hang on a minute, they don't match, but that's actually telling us something, and we need to understand why they don't match, and to just say, well, maybe the artifacts are post, you know, affected by post-depositional issues or something like that. I, I think I think we can push it more, um, and so you know, both of these articles were really attempts to think about well, what are some of the processes that may have um, influenced that um, mismatch between the artifacts and the the architecture, and how can we you know, start to think about some of the processes that might have uh, influenced that, um, and so the taskscape. I think is just one way of thinking ourselves out of that architectural frame and saying, okay, if we put aside the architecture for a minute and we think about what the finds might be telling us, does that actually help to change that balance? So, I mean, I wouldn't, of course, argue that we shouldn't be looking at the architecture, but simply that we should look at it as part of a wider complex of um, different sources of information and that perhaps we should treat them more independently um, so we shouldn't go first to the architecture and then say, okay, well, you know, what do the, the artifacts add to this? But we should look, okay, we can look at the ar architecture, but let's look at the artifacts independently um, and see what those might have to tell us by, by themselves. Uh, my name is Tyler Wolford. I'm a first-year PhD student in the Medieval Studies Department. My interests lie in uh, late antique and uh, Byzantine monasteries. Um, actually, my question is very similar to this in a sort of continuing the discussion, uh, particularly of these different timescales that different material cultures operating in. And the thing that I was very curious about and, and 
wondering is that particularly artifacts that are operating in a very uh, short time spirit time, so maybe it, being of Pompeii only was there that day or changes throughout the day, does that mean that the different scales also could be represent that they're shallower interpretation? They only go back so far, they only tell us so far back. One can only tell us about, I don't know, August of 79, one can only tell us about the summer, one can only tell us about the year. Yeah, so I, I think that the, the question of time is a really interesting and complex one, and I think, you know, as archaeologists, you know, time is one of the dimensions that we're operating in, and yet we very rarely pay much attention to it. Um, and so, but, but when we're thinking about the domestic context, of course, if we think about the sorts of activities that take place in the domestic context, um, they're all uh, temporally located. And so, yeah, so then the question is, well, what sorts of activities do we have? I mean, some of them, you know, this is a, a society where um, there isn't uh, a way to really modify the environment as much as we have. So, you know, in our houses we have heating in the winter when it's cold, we have air conditioning in the summer when it's hot, so we can kind of maintain a sort of livable status quo. But of course, you know, in, in antiquity, um, there's uh, much more that people have to kind of adjust to um, within the physical environment. And so um, I think one can start to think about rhythms of, of, of life and think about different time scales um, within which activities might have taken place. Um, now, of course, artifact distributions potentially speak to, as you suggest, a, a very short time scale. So maybe the I mean, the time when the artifacts were laid down, whether that was you know, during the lifetime of the house or whether it was uh, after the house was abandoned. Um, and so I think we need to look perhaps to some other types of source to, to think about um, time and the use of space over a longer time scale. Um, and that's why I've been sort of at our project at Linthos trying to uh, think about some of the other sources that might be available. And so we've been looking at things like micro debris. Um, which allow you to kind of build up a picture. I mean, the, the micro debris, the tiny, uh, very small artifacts or chips of artifacts like pottery or um, bone, they've accumulated in a space over time. Um, and so what, what they give you is a kind of palimpsest or an aggregate of activities. Um, so rather than looking at a, a single event, you're kind of seeing um, uh, you know, what's been happening over time. So it's almost like a, a record that's been sort of laid down. Um, and so, and, I mean, uh, geochemistry and things like that also perhaps offer a sort of longer um, time frame to look at uh, micromorphology as well, um, because it allows you to see perhaps a series of floors um, that were put down at different times. So, um, so that's actually another reason for wanting not to move away from the artifacts and the architecture, but to say, okay, well, we have these uh, wide range of different sources and they can start to tell us different things. So I think, you know, one of the things that traditionally we've had quite a narrow range of questions and we've tried to, you know, address the same question with the architecture and with the artifacts. I think what we need to realize is, well, we have a wider range of sources and they're telling us different, sometimes complementary things. Um, so actually we can build up a, a, a richer picture. Um, and so I think that the, the temporality can uh, factors into that as one of the things that we can learn. Uh, hi, I'm Mickey Cadignano. I'm in my seventh year in classics. Um, and I study Minoan food and feasting and households and this is going beyond the 
Roman treat when um, in the Pompeii article you talked about storage and how we find the same kinds of materials stored in different places around the house and maybe in places we wouldn't expect. And then I thought about maybe the Milan house and how actually we probably find the same thing <laughs> and I might attribute that to a certain untidiness. <laughs> Do what, to what degree do you think that we're assuming maybe too much logic in the way that their houses and that would actually assume more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, and I think that we do a lot of inductive in our thinking. You know, um, we have a very sort of basic model of, oh, food preparation should take place here, um, you know, other activities should take place over here. And, I mean, life is messy, I mean, <laughs> um, so, um, you know, so there is quite a lot of messiness, and I guess we can never filter that out, but um, perhaps we need to try and think about underlying patterns, but with an awareness that there is always going to be some messiness too. And I think the trick really is to uh, distinguish between where there is a pattern uh, and, and what's just uh, sort of noise, as it were. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I mean, and so that Pompeii article really was an attempt to get to grips of, with what there could, uh, could be in terms of systematic variation. Um, and, but I agree with you, we can't, we can, you know, there is going to be some messiness too, uh, but maybe some of that, some of what appears to us at the beginning to be messiness, there is actually a rationale underlying. So I think, you know, with exploring where the line lies really between those two. Hi, I'm Sophia Jaworski, I'm a third year PhD student in classical archaeology, so I'm really interested in religion and objects create and constrain specific experience. So I was um, wondering about domestic religion, and we've seen a lot of multifunctional use of space and multifunctional objects, and what does religion hold in mind? Well, I think that's a really hard question <laughs> to, uh, to address, and I mean, the ideological sphere, of course, is the hardest thing to, to uh, get at through material objects. I think maybe what we should start by thinking about is what we mean by religion in the ancient context. Um, because as soon as we use the word religion, perhaps it brings to mind a lot of modern concepts. And perhaps we think of it as something that's a little bit separate sometimes from daily life in some way. And um, uh, maybe we have to get away from thinking that in the ancient context. Um, so I think, you know, in some ways, the domestic sphere should be a good place for exploring that because um, you know, in some ways there's uh, an integration perhaps between uh, activities that we might think of as being religious um, and daily activities. So if, if you look, for example, at the evidence from Olynthos, you get sort of little altars and, and things um, within the domestic context. I guess the question then is, you know, how do those relate to, to practice? Um, and I think perhaps we have a, a better chance of looking for sort of ritual um, in the sense of repeated activities around those sorts of things um, than we do in terms of thinking about ideologies or, or thoughts. So I, I think there's a possibility there of, of looking for practice. Um, I, I guess I'm more pessimistic about the sort of ideological sphere. Uh, hi, I'm 
Danielle Vanderhorst. I'm a first year master's student in the science program. Um, I'm particularly interested in Romans and Northwestern provinces and aspects of horticulture that are coming out of the Mediterranean into the Northwest. Um, and I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about the flexibility of space in the home, which is something you touched upon in both articles. Um, more specifically, maybe how can we as archaeologists work around our modern preconceptions of what we believe space to actually be and what space should do in antiquity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult uh, problem. Uh, I mean, one approach that I've taken in the past has been to look at ethnographic evidence and just try to use that to think about alternative ways of, of organizing space or to try to highlight, highlight um, uh, I guess, preconceptions that we might have. Um, and I, I think in both of these articles, one of the things I've been trying to get at was this, this degree of flexibility. And I think uh, that um, Tim Ingall's work does help us in that because it, it, it sort of provides perhaps a more open setting uh, conceptually uh, for thinking about uh, the organization of activities. So I think one of the keys is perhaps to come without um, that too many preconceptions. And I think another thing is not to rely too much on the text. Um, so we have just a very few texts and we tend to use those as a framework uh, within which to view our archaeological evidence. And you know, the texts come from not only a very limited um, time span and a limited geographical uh, area, uh, but they're also written, obviously, from a very specific perspective um, in terms of the, the author. Um, and so in, uh, while we, you know, they're the best thing we have for anemic perspective, I think we shouldn't let them structure you know, the way that we interpret our, our physical evidence. So I think you know, coming to the physical evidence independently of the text and, and only then sort of bringing the two together and comparing what they tell us um, perhaps offers a, a better approach, in my opinion. Uh, hi, I'm Astrid van Oorn. I'm an assistant professor in uh, classical archaeology here uh, at Cornell. Um, and I want to ask you about um, activities which seem to be key to rethinking uh, space and statics and thinking in a sort of engulfing past capital. So how can we really get at activities uh, through artifacts? Uh, I, I mean, if you say, uh, think about, I mean, in your Pompeii paper, I think you had the example of a hearth, is that how you say it? Hearth. That um, can be used to, as for artisanal production or for cooking or for many kinds of things. And I guess, um, as archaeologists, we tend to, just like once we used to stick to at, uh, uh, categorizing space in rigid ways, you know, the kitchen, living room, I think we still have that tendency with artifacts, where we say, this is a cooking set, this is a bathroom set. So how can we think about artifacts in a more flexible way relating to activities? Yeah, I mean, I think that to some extent, um, some of the scientific studies offer a, 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 an insight into that. So. Uh, for example, residue analysis for pottery, um, um, uh, some of the alteration analysis on pottery. You know, what have people actually been doing with this? You know, did they, did it looks like a cooking pot, but did they actually put it in the fire or over the embers? Uh, marks in terms of stirring, um, things like that. I mean, but again, we also have to keep in mind what we talked about earlier that. Um, you know, these categories are not tidy. People use different things for different purposes. So there's 
um, you know, from the original Robinson excavations at Atlinthos, there's a black glazed jug um, which was, uh, had been used for mixing water uh, for laying a mosaic, pebble mosaic floor. So, I mean, people are inherently messy, and so one of the things we have to realize is, okay, uh, you know, an, an artifact may be associated generally with a specific activity or with a specific range of activities, but in any particular case, it may not be. So I think maybe you know, taking an isolated artifact is actually not very helpful. And what we have to be doing is looking at complexes of, of artifacts um, within you know, uh, known contexts. Um, uh, so I think always when you take one thing out of context, um, you know, it's dangerous to, to make assumptions about it. So I, I think um, you, know, you have to look at your different sources how they combine. Hi, Kathleen Barrett here again. I have a question about identity within the household. Mm -hmm. So in the Pompeii piece, you refer at one point to Shelley Hale's book, which um, deals, uh, which argues that Roman houses function as statements of their owners' Roman identities. And her book has sometimes attracted critique for uh, prioritizing Romanness of all the possible identities that people would have inhabited or performed. So if we want to take seriously an understanding of identities as plural and intersectional, what are the consequences for the archaeology of the household? How do we uh, investigate identity without imposing modern assumptions about which identities might have been most salient when and to whom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think there's a difference between um, investigating an identity and claiming that it's salient. So obviously, as you say, um, identity is very complex. Um, a single person can adopt many different kinds of identities at one time. Um, and I, but I think that just because we choose to investigate one particular aspect, that doesn't necessarily, or it shouldn't necessarily, imply that, that, we, that we think that that was most important. It's just that because identity is so complex, it's hard to investigate the totality of different identities at once. And so almost what we need to do is kind of tease out um, different strands um, and you know, maybe we have to be more careful in, in the way that we frame our discussion to make it clear that we recognize that there are these multiple identities. Um, but, uh, and I, but I also think that you know, perhaps for us it's hard to evaluate you know, what could have been important or the most important identity to someone. Um, so uh, perhaps we have to recognize that you know, we can study these different identities, um, but we can't necessarily that one or two were salient over others. And I mean, we know from our own experience that our identity shifts a lot. You know, if, you know, if a, I'm in a classroom and I'm a professor, if I go home, I'm my daughter's mother. You know, um, our identities shift very rapidly according to context. And, um, you know, I, I like to be an optimist and I like to push the evidence as far as we can, but there are limits. Um, and, you know, perhaps... Uh, Trying to determine one or two salient identities is, is perhaps over-optimistic, uh, but but I, I think you're right that we should be aware um, of intersectionality and, and of these multiple identities. It's just very difficult to uh, sort of pull those all out simultaneously within you know the the confines of an article or a book. Um, so sort of on this topic, um, thinking about ways that we actually can start to tease these things out. It seems that 
um, looking at food ways and drinking practices and things like that is a, a really um, promising avenue. And so I was wondering if you could expand on sort of the new methodologies and techniques that your current project is using to try to get at these answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I actually think that that's a sort of exciting uh, angle for me anyway to, to think about identity. Um, and food ways, well, um, there are a number of assumptions that people make about um, households in the classical Greek context, and uh, but you very quickly come to realize that uh, a lot of them don't have very much evidence. And so, I mean, <laughs> we're doing things that prehistorians would take for granted, but they're not widely done in classical context. So uh, looking at our faunal evidence, looking at our <laughs> archaeobotanical evidence, um, hoping to build up um, a basic uh, understanding of you know what, what were people eating, how were they preparing their food. Um, we can think about storage, which has actually received more attention. I mean, Nicholas Cahill and his uh, book, based on the old evidence from the Linthos, discussed you know comparing and contrasting different storage strategies, and I think that's a, a good approach. But of course. Um, he didn't have available to him the full ceramic assemblage because that wasn't saved by the old uh, uh, projects. So I think what we're seeing perhaps uh, from our evidence is that perhaps there was a wider range of um, ceramic shapes that may have been used for storage. So I think we have to perhaps think in a more comprehensive way about what was available within the household um, to do that, that sort of activity. Um, but I think that there are also some sort of more modern scientific methods that one can think about in terms of um, you know, looking at residues um, from pottery um, that, you know, again, haven't really been done uh, in the Greek context. So um, I think what I hope we can do is kind of characterize um, Olympian tastes, as it were. Um, and obviously, uh, one of the challenges in archaeology is, you know, you dig maybe one house and we might be able to build up quite a good uh, picture of what was the taste of this household um, but then the question is, well, how typical was it? Um, and that's the reason for trying to contextualize one household more broadly um, you know, by looking at um, survey evidence and collecting material from across the site to say, well, okay, you know, we can see what's going on in this household. And obviously the, the range of sources that we have when we're dealing with archaeological surveys is much narrower. We don't, we don't have you know, the residue analysis or the archaeobotanical or faunal evidence. But still, even with ceramics, perhaps we can start to build up a, a, an impression of how typical our one household might have been of its neighbourhood um, and also of the city as a whole. Um, so I, I think it's a complex question and we're kind of trying to address it from different perspectives. And obviously it's a, uh, an issue that requires many different specialisms and many different colleagues who can kind of contribute um, their perspectives to build up this overall question. Um, so, um, yeah, we're, we're, I'm excited about it. <laughs> uh, I hope we'll have some results uh, later on. Shifting gears a little bit, um, so in one of your papers you mentioned a house in Cappadocia, is that where you're based? Yeah. I did the math and it's only about 100 square feet bigger than my one room studio apartment. So how do you think limited space contributed to shared space activities and or also functionality? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously one of the things is that the larger the space available, perhaps the more chance there is of separating activities. Um, and so in our project, well, one of the 
aspects that we're looking at is um, the spatial location of activities. And one of the methods um, that we have a colleague, um, Carla Lancelotti, who's based in Bar Barcelona, she's using geo geochemistry to try and um, detect different activities. And I think one reason why it's kind of exciting to do it in the, in the context of our house is that it's a very big house, and normally these techniques are used in prehistoric contexts. Um, and as you say, often the, the space is very limited. And um, while people may have been using exterior space to some extent to do some of their domestic activities, the space within the house, if you're going to try and sample for these kind of things, presumably it's a palimpsest and people are having to do the, the, you know, lots of different things within a confined space. Once you get to a bigger house, like our house, there is potentially more space where they could have separated out their activities. And so one of the questions is, did they kind of move towards this neat kind of pattern of using different spaces for different things that we kind of have as our, I don't know, something we would really like to find. I think that we were always looking for, for it. Um, uh, or, in fact, even though they had much space, were they still very messy? Um, so that, that's a, a question that I think is, is worth asking. Um, uh, and, and perhaps will tell us something about the mentality of the people using these um, these houses, you know, did because I mean, we we always want to categorise things, don't we? I mean, even in our own homes, we might, you know, name our bedroom or our living room, whatever. But then, you know, we watch TV in bed, or we might, you know, somebody might sleep on our couch, and you know, so life it, it is is messier. So um, you know, we sort of return to this question of messiness, and um, just even given the opportunity not to be quite so messy with a bigger space, do people take it or do they? <laughs> So I have a question about sort of the the what happens to the site sort of after sort of the transformations. I mean, you were talking about in Pompeii that even the Pompeii, the so-called Pompeii premise, doesn't work for even Pompeii. Um, and you're, you, I think you cited sort of Michael uh, Skipper's transformation. How do we get at those kinds of things and not sort of read them into sort of identity and into the way we're interpreting what was going on? Yeah, so you're thinking of trying to separate out the post-depositional process. Right. Yeah. Um, so, well, I think a good start is to look at stratigraphy, which is a project. But, yeah, so, I mean, so obviously, um, you know, to think about, uh, you know, where your artifacts came from in, in the layers. Uh, but, you know, there are now uh, scientific techniques which didn't exist for Robinson. And so, particularly, um, one thing that we're trying is uh, soil micromorphology, because also, the floors in these houses are earth floors, um, which are notoriously difficult to spot as you're, you know, coming down onto them. Um, and so, obviously, you know, if if, you, if what you're trying to do is look at what people were doing on their floor, you need to be sure that you're identifying the floor correctly, because otherwise, you know, the perhaps the artifacts or you know the, the soil samples or whatever you're taking, if you're taking them from the fill and not the floor, you're probably not getting the right kind of information. Um, so I, I think even you know just being aware of these problems and then trying to uh, address them um, through a methodology um, is, is important. So I have a question about um, ideology and social structures in domestic spaces. So what you've shown us for passage of fruit, for example, is that while we would have expected, say, the women are in a separate space from the men. And gender, that in fact, you don't see that in 
the way they live in their houses. So going coming from a prehistorian perspective, when we don't have those texts, and we might like to look at the houses and be able to find those structures in them, do you think that maybe those texts also make for asking the wrong questions of these houses, or do you think that's still possible with using these kind of methodologies? Um, so you're thinking <laughs> of, of asking those sorts of questions in the prehistoric context. Right, well, yeah. we don't have the text to yeah. indicate that, you know, they would have liked the women to be separate or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I guess gender is one of those questions that people ask in all kinds of contexts, isn't it? Just because, well, obvious physical difference. <laughs> I guess, you know, the more sophisticated uh, approach might be to try and move away from the binary. Um, and um, I don't know that the domestic context is necessarily the first place to look. Um, I mean, I think there have been some good approaches to mortuary uh, landscapes and mortuary treatment of individuals. Um, I don't know whether that approach could then, you know, if you start to build up a model based on your mortuary evidence and then try and look at whether it corresponds to what you're finding in the domestic sphere, whether that might be one way to approach it. Um, but, I mean, you can also look for uh, evidence of uh, the way that space is partitioned, perhaps, um, within the interior. But again, you know, often the dwellings that you're dealing with are much smaller, um, and so it is harder to find um, distinctions, spatial distinctions. Um, but, you know, there are obviously a number of um, quite sophisticated approaches that people have used um, uh, in the American context, for example, um, trying to look at different kinds of activities and how they're separated. Of course, the challenge then is to associate that with gender. Um, and again, you know, maybe, maybe if you take the mortuary evidence and you see a strong association there are artifacts in particular individuals, but then you can see in a domestic context, maybe that might be one way to do it. But I don't know, having had the luxury of the text as well as the problem of the text, um, it's not yeah, it's not something that I personally have had to deal with. Um, but I do yes, agree that you have different problems um, and you know uh, different levels of analysis that would be necessary. So my question is similar to ones that have already been asked, but just going through the, interpret the interpretive space between the objects to the practices and then maybe to the people, um, for example, the association with women mm -hmm. um, in the home, if that's something we should do, how we can get at people's through practices, through objects, if that makes sense. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the big challenges, and um, you know, I've uh, wanted to do that with my work, and I think um, it, it, differentiation between the sexes is in some ways easier to look for than some of the other social distinctions. I mean, um, you know, Ruth Westgate in a recent article was trying to look for slaves in the domestic context, and I think that's very challenging. Um, I think we shouldn't use a priori assumptions about who may have been doing the weaving, for example. But if we look at contextual information, um, for example, iconography, I mean, again, you know, arguably, um, the iconography might be representing something which doesn't bear 
a direct relation to actual practice at the time we're looking at. So you have to be kind of careful. On the other hand, you might say, well, uh, how, how can this image be meaningful to people if it's representing something which is alien to them? Um, so again, I think the key thing here is context. You know, we can't just pull out one source of information and then build a whole um, uh, story for ourselves. Um, we do have to um, look at different sources and um, uh, see what the different sources tell us. And one of the interesting things, I think, is that when you do start to look at different sources, they often don't agree, um, and so they kind of leave us scratching our heads. Um, but we should um, perhaps be thinking... Um, <laughs> we should perhaps be thinking uh, how the disagreement between those sources has arisen, because um, that's actually kind of interesting. So, I mean, that's kind of what I um, was thinking about when I did my own work on um, gender within the, the Greek household. You know, why is it that the texts give us a different picture from what the archaeology gives us? Well, of course, you know, the texts are ideologically motivated, um, and so always we need to think about our sources um, and you know, the context for those sources and how that context may have uh, influenced some, as it were. Um, so I think being a critical uh, reader of the evidence is probably a good first step. Um, but I kind of think you came out with different concepts that we've been discussing and bringing the past into modernity. And I'm really interested in how do we kind of battle the rigidity in which um, the the populace at large kind of um, views um, the way that ancient households might have worked. And I'm thinking of Pompeii specifically, which is a, a, a very um, visited site, you know, I mean, thousands and thousands of visitors every year that come through and go into these houses and actually interact with these spaces in the modern times. So I'm wondering, how do we sort of um, battle the modern preconceptions of, you know, this was an atrium and this is what happened in it and this was a museum and this is what happened into it. Um, I mean, is it as simple as taking these amphorae and putting them in the atrium and presenting things in which they were found again? You know, how do we kind of battle this this notion of um, of how we conceive uh, ancient uh, practices and life? Mm -hmm. So you're thinking about the presentation of the past to perhaps the lay public rather than to the scholarly community. Yeah, I mean, so uh, one question is uh, how complex do you want to make it? Uh, for, for that audience, and I think in some ways, um, if you can present a coherent picture, um, then that's uh, more, that's easier for people to take on board, um, and then perhaps allow people, if they want to explore, um, you can add layers of complexity, but, but maybe um, if you start with a kind of traditional framework, and then show how that, that can be broken down, that's a better approach than immediately confronting them with the messiness we've been talking about, because I think that's potentially very confusing for somebody who's not a specialist. Um, so I, I guess I would say that even though we may criticize the models, um, they are helpful tools uh, for, for thinking, and perhaps also they represent, I mean, thinking particularly in relation to the atrium house and, and Wallace Hadrill's model, I think they do represent useful ways of thinking about these things, and perhaps also they represent um, a kind of uh, ideological framework. Even if life is actually messy, there are often you know, cultural expectations, um, and perhaps part of the way we live is 
um, we make a choice about how much to conform and how much to try to subvert uh, cultural expectations or cultural norms. Um, and I think that that's true about the use of space, just as it is about other things, like our dress or um, you know, things like that. So, um, so then the question is, I, I think that for, for the, the public, it's perhaps useful for them to have that model um, and then um, to be able to explore you know, how, how that model may have been subverted in an individual um, instance. I want to ask a, a question about uh, specificity versus generalization. And we touched upon it already, uh, talking about how, and in your talk as well, about how identity is multiscalar and uh, we need to find a way to deal with these mixed skills. But a lot of the new techniques that archaeology has and that we're demonstrating at Olimpo, they seem to push us further and further down to specifics. So it's more and more detail and you know, micro recipe use and the analysis. And we just can talk about this specific pot and what was contained in it and so on. So how do we still use uh, those techniques and, 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 uh, and their potential, but uh, zoom back out, as it were, to make more general yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's the emphasis of our multi-scalar approach that we're trying to do. Uh, and uh, I guess the question then is, how far can you sort of build uh, a generality from yeah from the specific? Um, obviously, today we can't uh, sort of go into a project expecting to excavate a hundred houses as, uh, as Robinson did. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think going back to the Linthos makes so much sense, because, um, okay, our, our legacy data are not very detailed, but they do provide some sort of context. And I think, I mean, for me, uh, the multi-scalar approach is essential, because otherwise, as you say, we know about this one pot, or we know about this one house, but how does, how does that um, uh, you know, illuminate the general picture? And I think, you know, for Linthos anyway, um, by the end of the project, we'll have the first opportunity really to be able to evaluate a, house, a household within the urban framework. I mean, so often when we're dealing with an excavated house, we don't know much about either the neighbourhood it's sitting in or the wider city. Um, so we can't evaluate, for example, the economic status of the occupants, um, which must surely make a difference to how much we can generalise from a single house to the rest of the city. Um, you know, as Olympus, we'll be in a position to know the, the approximate organisation of more than half the houses in the city uh, by the time we finish the project. So we'll have actually a much better idea of where our household fits um, within, you know, the, the sort of size spectrum. And obviously, you know, you can't directly link size with economic status and things like that. But I think, you know, it's something of a proxy. So we, I think that. You know, if we have even a rough picture of the context within the broader urban framework, um, we have a much better chance of, of trying to um, evaluate how representative these things are. Um, so stepping back for just a moment, I'd be interested to hear more about how you would want to position the study of Greek and Roman houses within the broader field of household archaeology worldwide. So if we're to communicate with people who work in, say, Mesoamerican households or households in the prehistoric Near East or uh, wherever, um, 
what are the unique contributions of the kind of data sets that we can bring to yeah, I mean, I think to some extent we're catching up um, uh, with what people have done in other contexts in terms of the application of um, scientific uh, techniques. I think in some ways we're in a, a comparable position with some of the work that's been done in Mesoamerican households in the sense that you know we tended to use our literary evidence as a kind of a framework for interpreting our physical evidence, and they've tended to use uh, ethnographic evidence in the same way. So I think we have shared difficulties and, and problems and, and assumptions. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, it would be good to establish perhaps more of a dialogue than, than we've had in the past around households um, in, in different contexts. Um, there's a little bit of a problem as well because the way that people have thought about cities in general, um, often if you read a general discussion of cities, um, there's a throwaway line which says, oh, well, the Greek city wasn't really typical, so we're not going to consider it. <laughs> Out of the window. <laughs> um, so I think we, we have a little bit of a, uh, an uphill battle to go to show people that actually the Greek city is a valid uh, sort of uh, subject for inquiry, and, and you know just because it doesn't fit. And I think well, I think there are two reasons why it's often excluded. One is it's a kind of specialized, seen as a rather esoteric field. Um, there's so much data; it's hard for outsiders to. And the other is it doesn't fit into many of the kind of anthropological models um, of what a city um, should be or how a city should develop. And so um, that's, uh, uh, you know, led people just to leave it to one side and say, well, yeah, okay, we won't deal with that. But actually, I think we should be asking, well, why doesn't it fit? What's it telling us about our more general frameworks uh, that we ought to be recognizing? And maybe it's, it's showing us that, you know, there's some room for improvement, perhaps in the way that we think Listening to Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be a great one with Professor Jason DeLeon of the University of Michigan, when we will be discussing his award-winning book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening to Radio Siams.